Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Let's jump into the news roundup. Russia seized a nuclear power plant in Ukraine overnight, but experts say there's no immediate evidence of a rise in radiation levels. The U.S. Embassy in Kiev says the attack constitutes a war crime. Well, it came just one day after another round of U.S. sanctions on Russia, sanctions that targeted some of the country's most powerful people. So how effective are these sanctions really, and what will they mean for how the U.S. deals with Russia in the days and weeks to come? We'll get into that, plus a recap of President Biden's first State of the Union and a look at the new White House plan to live with COVID-19. Reed Wilson is a national correspondent for The Hill, joins us now. Reed, great to have you with us. Hey, David. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Washington Post. I should point out it's his second time on the show this week, and a special thanks for being here with us again, Shane. You bet, David. It's great to be on with you. And Leanne Caldwell is a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News, a friend and former colleague of mine. Leanne, it's great to talk with you once again. Great to talk to you too, David. Shane, let me start with you. The U.S. stepping up sanctions again this week. On Thursday, the White House targeted more Russian elites, more oligarchs. Here's President Biden speaking ahead of his cabinet meeting, what would be his fourth of his administration. Today I'm announcing that we're adding dozens of names to the list, including one of Russia's wealthiest billionaires. And I'm... uh, banning travel to America by by more than 50 Russian oligarchs, their families, and their close associates. Shane, the White House is going after super yachts and private jets. Dmitry Peskov, President Putin's spokesman, is uh, one of the oligarchs that the the administration has mentioned here. Why take this route? We've gotten the sanctions on uh, reserves held overseas, Russian reserves held overseas, changes to the SWIFT payment processing system. Why target more oligarchs here? Well, one part of the administration's strategy, and we should say it's not clear it's really going to work, is to try and target the people around Putin who historically I think people have felt that he draws a lot of his support in Russia from. A lot of these are people who he has made wealthy, uh, who owe their positions to him. And I think some of the thinking is that if you squeeze the ones around him, they might in turn put pressure on Putin to withdraw and to stop this military campaign. It's just not clear to me and I think to a lot of experts who I've been talking to – Um, that Putin necessarily answers to these people. It's kind of more the other way around. So it does raise some questions about whether or not squeezing uh, these individuals, though they may be, you know, corrupt themselves, frankly, and and, and close to Putin, is going to get him to change course. Read a bit more on that, uh, if you would. So the, the oligarchs themselves are being targeted. Their family members are being targeted as well. There are the sanctions. There's also this new initiative, which the president previewed, renounced during the State of the Union to start this klepto-capture initiative at the Department of Justice. Uh, Just help us understand a bit more sort of what role these oligarchs play uh, in Russian society today. These are the the people who have given the most support to, to Putin over the years, the the circles that he travels in. And we've seen some cracks in the oligarchs' uh, support for Putin. There have been some uh, relatively prominent Russians who have come out and, uh, in opposition to the war. Um, Luke Oil, one of the largest uh, petrochemical uh, companies in, in Russia, uh, stated their own opposition to the war. So this is – there, there are signs here here that support among that upper echelon of Russian society is not 
what it once was for Vladimir Putin. Now, the question is, does that matter? Does, does Putin care about uh, that level of elite opinion enough? Um, and, you know, the, the sort of the notion is if, if these guys lose four or five billion of their $10 billion fortune uh, and they complain to Putin about it, the question that Putin then gets to ask is, all right, do you want to keep the rest of your billions? Uh, and that gets to Shane's point about uh, sort of who answers to who in this, in this equation. But the, this, is, this is a more aggressive effort uh, to sanction those around Vladimir Putin and put pressure on his inner circle uh, than the U.S. or Europe has ever conducted before. Leanne, this has been happening on kind of a rolling basis since before the, the conflict itself uh, began. On Wednesday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced a new round of economic sanctions against both Russia and Belarus. Here's the secretary who is currently on a trip to Europe. We're also imposing sweeping sanctions on Russia's defense sector. In total, 22 Russian defense-related entities will be designated, including companies that make combat aircraft, infantry fighting vehicles, missiles, unmanned aerial vehicles, electronic warfare systems. The very systems now being used to assault the Ukrainian people, abuse human rights, violate international humanitarian law. We're also imposing export controls on Belarus to hold the Lukashenko regime accountable for being a co-belligerent in President Putin's war of choice. Leon Caldwell, what are you hearing about the efficacy of, of these sanctions on Russian military companies uh, in particular as, as this war unfolds? Well, David, this is, as you mentioned, it's part of rolling sanctions. So you had the first tranche of sanctions at the very beginning of this and the second, and then the SWIFT international system was uh, was targeted, and then the the oligarchs and, and this as well. And so specifically pointing to the defense component, they say that it's going to have some sort of impact, although there are alliances with with China and elsewhere that Russia has. But it's part of this larger picture that people are saying that the sanctions are starting to have an impact. There is acknowledgement that it does take time, but they think that this is a way to squeeze Russia. Uh, There's been a lot of reporting and talk about how Russia has been preparing for this for years. Um, And so they do have ways around it, but it does seem to be squeezing the people. And what, what some people are starting to say is that it really needs to impact the middle class and everyday Russians in order to really, really try to have some sort of make this some sort of impact on how Russia and how Putin uh, acts here. And Reed Wilson, about the role of of Belarus here, a critically important country in the lead up to this conflict uh, under Alexander Lukashenko. President Putin was able to uh, stage troops and get ready for for this invasion. Um, As the Secretary of State mentioned, there have been sanctions placed on that country now. What role is it playing as this incursion continues, um, as the crisis in Ukraine continues? Well, it's clear that the Belarus is, is the staging ground. As you mentioned, they, the Russians were uh, conducting exercises with the Belarusian military forces. Um, it appears that Belarus is uh, beginning to enter the war itself. Uh, you heard Secretary Blinken uh, call them a co-belligerent there. Uh, and they are, I mean, they're, they're you know another former Soviet state that President Putin has exercised this this sort of control over that he's now trying to exert over Ukraine. Uh, Lukashenko was once a uh, more independent of of Russia and, and sort of tried to play Europe and Russia off each other. Uh, but in recent years, he has become much more of a of a uh, a puppet of the Russian regime almost, uh, and uh, he is playing that supporting role now in this invasion of Ukraine as Putin tries to exert that that control over yet another former Soviet state. 
Leanne, let me turn to you. You're covering the Hill day in and day out, and uh, there's now this conversation on Capitol Hill about the contours of a $10 billion aid package for Ukraine. I should say it was just a few days ago a $6 billion uh, aid package that's grown in size over the last few days. What do we know about the contours of that package, what's in it, what the White House would like to see put in that aid package for Ukraine? Yeah, well, it has grown, as you mentioned, and they've also noted the administration that it's probably going to get bigger, maybe in not this round, but rounds down the future or um, down the line. Um, it's about it's money for humanitarian aid and then it's money for defense aid. That's ammunition, that's uh, defense capabilities. Uh, for Ukraine. And they are saying there seems to be large agreement on Capitol Hill that this aid is absolutely necessary. Uh, Republicans want it to happen more quickly than sooner than later. Uh, Democrats too, but there's a process that has to um, it has to go through, and it's expected to be attached to a must-passed government spending bill um, that has to be passed uh, by March 11th. And so time is running out. There are these negotiations, though, um, on 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 not only the aid, but also the larger picture, which is slowing it down a little bit. Um, but there is almost unanimity that this defense and this humanitarian aid is absolutely necessary and needs to get to the Ukrainians as soon as possible. Reed Wilson, it's a funny thing. Leanne bringing up that must-pass spending bill, we have this Ukraine aid package, and I wonder, what's the catalytic item in, in each of those things? Do, do lawmakers think that it's the aid package that's going to push for agreement on, on the omnibus spending bill, or is it, or is it vice versa at this point? Yeah, Dem- Democrats think that this is that the the Ukraine aid package is what will get uh, the spending bill over the hump. The the question though is, it, it, to, to Leanne's point about the process, it's about uh, sort of where the money comes from. The initial proposal from the Biden administration uh, asked for money from for the Defense Department that would have basically been reallocated. You know, money that had already been uh, allocated to the Defense Department, just sort of reengineered to to face this uh, crisis in Ukraine. Uh, Republicans have shot that down. They say this is an emergency. It's time to spend new and different money uh, and leave the existing Defense Department budget alone. Uh, so they'll have those conversations and and figure something out. But um, as Leanne says, the the urgency here is is what's pushing everything ahead. And, you know, Republicans don't want the government, well, the the Republican leadership, I should say, Mm. uh, doesn't want the government to shut down. They know that's a bad thing and that's bad election year politics. Uh, So this can give them something of a a face-saving out. Uh, We had to pass the Ukrainian uh, budget, we had to pass money uh, to deal with the crisis in Ukraine, and so therefore uh, we passed this government funding plan too. So it sort of, everybody gets a little win here. Everybody gets a little wind here. We are rounding up the week's top stories. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. 
BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to read a tweet here from Cole. Quote, my grandfather lives in Russia and is a pensioner. I know that sanctions will probably affect him horribly. Can you please explain why hurting the Russian people financially will help stop Putin? Uh, Shane Harris, I'll turn to you on, on that question. Uh, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, there, there is a debate about um, the, the collateral damage or fallout from these sanctions. They're, they're meant to be targeted, but sanctions are constricting an economy and, and they'll be fallout beyond the oligarchs about whom we were talking just a few moments ago. Um, help us understand kind of the calculus that the administration is going through at this point. Well, I think that's with any kind of broad sanction regime, there's always an awareness that you don't want to punish who might be innocent people. At the same time, putting political pressure uh, on Vladimir Putin by making his citizens, uh, frankly, see their bank accounts kind of go down, their spending power uh, diminish. There is some thinking, there long has been when it comes to sanctions, that by essentially putting the pinch on the public, you put political pressure on the leader. Uh, We could find examples where perhaps that has not worked out so well. I might point to Iran as an example of that, where there are just like sector-wide crippling sanctions and it hasn't really deterred that regime from pursuing nuclear weapons or doing other things the United States doesn't like. Um, but this is unavoidable. <clears throat> I mean, really, the, 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 the most significant sanction in the whole package was on the Russian central bank, uh, which sees, you know, potentially more than about half a trillion dollars in currency reserves that Russia had around the world. That just obliterated the value of the ruble. I think it's now actually closed most recently on the exchanges at less than one cent for per ruble. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was going to be unavoidable if the administration and its allies launched these kinds of massive, big, big historic sanctions that Russian citizens were going to get caught in the crossfire. And I think that to some degree, the administration is also hoping that this will send a message to the Russian public about what Putin and the Russian military are actually doing in Ukraine. There's a lot of evidence that Russian people don't even really, on a broad level anyway, maybe don't understand that the Russian military has invaded Ukraine, that it's not being greeted as a liberating force, and that many people don't want them there. So I think I think the sanctions are in part is also designed to kind of expose what Putin is really up to. Shane, if you and I were to walk into the Treasury Department and say, show us your, your sanctions toolbox, if we crack that open, um, there is something significant that's left inside there right now. It's these energy sanctions. And we had uh, the House Speaker, as Leanne knows well, mentioned earlier this week. She She's open to the idea of there being some kind of oil embargo. But there has been this reluctance so far in the administration's part, Shane, to target the energy sector in particular. Uh, And I wonder sort of what you're hearing or what you're thinking is about when the administration might look more closely at perhaps deploying or using that tool. Yeah, I think they're going to wait and see on that one for the main reason that, you know, once you start targeting the Russian energy sector, gas prices could go up even higher than they already are 
right now. Um, also in Europe, where you know natural gas from Russia is a major source of energy for many countries, they're not cutting off the pipeline necessarily. And Russia wants to keep that open, of course, so that it can raise revenues for its own economy. It needs to be able to sell uh, energy when so much of the rest of its economy is being blockaded. I would suspect that the administration, I mean, they know full well that this is in the toolkit, as you say, is going to want to see how the war progresses and to what degree Vladimir Putin either dials it down or ratchets it up. I have to say, after last night's uh, uh, really unnerving spectacle of Russian military forces shelling a nuclear power plant uh, in the south of Ukraine, I don't think anybody thinks at this point that Putin is dialing this war down. If anything, the worst, as uh, President Macron said this week, is possibly yet to come. So I think the administration is probably imagining that it's going to have to think about when it's time to, as you say, pull out of the toolkit that uh, that remaining uh, big weapon. Just a haunting live stream in monochrome that people were watching uh, as, as that happened, as you mentioned, Shane. Um, before we get to the State of the Union itself, I just want to talk a bit about the environment surrounding it. Uh, the minority leader, Senator Mitch McConnell, had some choice words for President Putin uh, after President Biden's big speech. Let's take a listen. What President Putin is, is a ruthless thug who's just invaded another sovereign country and killed thousands of innocent people. That's what President Putin Yes. Uh, Leon Caldwell, the gentleman from Kentucky, they're talking about how he supports President Biden's actions against uh, Russia, but they should have happened sooner. To To my question about the atmosphere on Capitol Hill surrounding this speech, how is the invasion of Ukraine, the conflict in Ukraine affecting, uh, yes, Washington politics, but legislative politics more specifically? Well, there's a couple things here. Uh, Republicans and Democrats were divided at the very beginning of this, uh, before the war started, on whether to attack, uh, respond to what Putin was planning to do before he actually did it, or wait. And as Shane mentioned, the administration has been very um, insistent on keeping the tools in the toolbox, not unleashing everything that was Um, available to them immediately so that they didn't have anything left as things progressed. Um, Now that that phase is almost over, we see what is happening. Washington has really rallied around the president. Of course, there is a minority in the Republican Party. Then there's some people who are still um, more, more lenient against Putin in the Republican Party. But those voices have been drowned out. For the most part, um, you see Republicans and Democrats on the same page as the president, even though they talk about what the Republicans will criticize Biden for not doing enough early on, that that strong reaction is absolutely necessary. And I know we're going to go into the State of the Union in a moment, but that was some of the strongest components of President Biden's speech. And you see Republicans and Democrats coming together to push the White House to do more. We were just talking about the energy sanctions. Uh, you have Republicans and Democrats. It's important to note many of them from energy-producing mm-hmm. states who are pushing the administration to unleash those energy sanctions against Russia. Um, as symbolic or as real of an impact that they might or might not have, that can be debated. But the the Congress has for the first time in a very long time, put away the partisanship and come together to support Biden and the administration in this effort. 
Well, let's talk a bit about that speech, 62 minutes long. The, the line everyone was waiting for came pretty close to the end of that speech. The president said the State of the Union is strong because you, the American people, uh, are strong. Uh, first on the docket in this speech was the war in Ukraine. Let's take a listen to, to what the president had to say. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Reed Wilson, let's start with those remarks on Ukraine and what you heard and what the president had to say about uh, the justification for the kind of economic warfare the U.S. and its allies have, have kind of pioneered, really, against uh, Russia in these last few days. Right. This was an opportunity for President Biden to, to reframe uh, the conversation about the, the essentially the, the conflict between autocracy and democracy. And that's what that that was the way he framed it in this speech, uh, the way he he sought to bring together Congress in, in a way that, um, frankly, they don't really get along that much anymore. Um, but it, this is sort of who Joe Biden is, right? He, he still believes in the notion that Republicans and Democrats can get along and work together. Uh, the war in Ukraine has united uh, American politics, unlike anything we've seen in recent years, uh, on one side. And, uh, and that's the Ukrainian side. And so President Biden uh, was able to use that as a rallying cry before he got into the domestic agenda, before he got into the, the stuff that would, you know, have Democrats jumping to their feet and applauding and Republicans sitting stone-faced and silent. Uh, the fact is this was the one way that uh, he could show uh, American unity and a union that remains strong. Shane Harris, we've, we, we've seen uh, the world shrink or bifurcate in a way over the course of, of, of this conflict. During the speech, President Biden banned Russian planes from flying over uh, U.S. airspace. Uh, a couple of tweets that we've gotten recently, I'll read here, Matt, with one of them. It's time for a no-fly zone. Here he's talking about over Ukraine. It's time for all world leaders to say to Putin that no matter what territory he captures, he cannot keep it. He will pay reparations to Ukraine. Uh, Margaret tweeting this. We do not need a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which will surely lead to war uh, with Russia. So the president announcing uh, this kind of restriction on flights over U.S. airspace. We've seen European allies follow suit. Um, NATO thus far has rejected this call for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Why is that the case? Why, why is this a sticking point for, for that alliance? Well, a no-fly zone in this case would mean that military aircraft were patrolling the skies uh, over Ukraine to make sure that Russian military aircraft were not there, um, which puts them right in position to start fighting each other and to create a confrontation. So the only way you can enforce a no-fly zone is if you're prepared to shoot down the aircraft that violate it. And of course, if you know U.S. and European allied countries start firing on Russian aircraft, then we are arguably at war with Russia. Uh, now, they're, 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 the political will for this is just not there right now now. Throughout this entire campaign, uh, in the run-up to Russia's invasion, it was very clear that NATO and the United States were not going to intervene militarily because they do not want to go, go to war with Russia, with this huge military with nuclear weapons. Um, so, the, you know, you've seen this no-fly zone come up again and again, largely at the behest of President Zelensky in Ukraine, who has been desperate for it. And you can see why the public uh, uh, has some interest in this as well, because, you know, if Russia can maintain air superiority, 
over Ukraine. It can protect its military. It can take over the country. Politically speaking, though, it's just not there. And I do not think that you would see the kind of uh, unanimous, nearly support for uh, the Ukrainian people that you saw at that State of the Union address if President Biden were now talking about putting American forces in harm's way and possibly igniting a war with Russia. This was an economic speech uh, as well. The president spent the bulk of his time in the State of the Union talking about the U.S. economy, uh, the challenges with regard to inflation in particular. Uh, Let's take a listen to what he had to say about rising costs, higher prices, and inflation. One way to fight inflation is to drive down wages and make Americans poorer. I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. (laughs) Folks... That means make more cars and semiconductors in America, more infrastructure and innovation in America, more goods moving faster and cheaper in America, more jobs where you can earn a good living in America. Instead of relying on foreign supply chains, let's make it in America. Reed Wilson getting a tweet here from AC. Gas, food, and all other basic goods prices are skyrocketing, and everyday Americans are struggling now more than ever to afford to survive paycheck to paycheck. What are Biden and the Democrats doing to stem this tide? The midterms are coming, and folks vote with their wallets. You you heard what the president proposed there, Reed, making more products here in the United States. These are... Uh, to be fair, long-term is solutions. These aren't things that are going to change things immediately. So, so what is the administration proposing it do vis-a-vis inflation in the near term? Right. So this underscores sort of the, the modern uh, truth of the, sort of the paradox of the American presidency. This is the most powerful office in the world. He is the most powerful man uh, on planet Earth. And yet there's not really much that President Biden can do to combat global inflation. I mean, this is not just an American problem. It's uh, happening across the world uh, because of these snarled supply chains, because of um, of, of the, the pandemic and everything that has that has come from from it, but uh, so Biden has proposed uh, effectively some smaller things. You heard you heard the you know, more jobs in, in the United States. I mean, every president promises that, but he's pledged to encourage competition, strengthen supply chains, crack down on shipping costs, which have gone absolutely through the roof in, in the last uh, couple of years, and renewing a push to lower prescription drug prices, uh, which would be great for seniors and and, and people who are uh, on prescription drugs. And of course, that's been a long term goal of the Biden administration as well. Uh, the the interesting part to me here is that I think a lot of the angst over inflation is happening because this is the first real inflation shock that has hit an entire generation of people. I mean, millennials, people in Generation Z, we've never really gone through an inflation shock before. The last time there was significant inflation, we were either not yet born or in diapers. So um, this is this is new and scary for a huge percentage of Americans uh, in, in the workforce um, who have never seen something like this before. The president talked about Ukraine. He talked about the economy. Leon Kodal, he also talked about COVID-19, no shortage of, of crises for the president to talk about. And I, I'd love to get into that by just asking about the visuals of this event. For the first time, really, we were able to see the faces of these lawmakers. We were able to see uh, retiring Justice Stephen Breyer smile so effusively when he was uh, praised for his career in public service by by the president. Um, there was this absence of, of, of masks. And I just wonder if you could speak to sort of that, that visual phenomenon. You, again, as somebody who covers the Capitol day in and day out, how much this has changed the way things look, the way people act on Capitol Hill. Yes, it's the masks and COVID have been a huge point of contention between the parties for more, two years now on Capitol Hill. And masks had been required on the House floor. 
up until the announcement was made uh, prior to the State of the Union, less than a week before, that masks would now be optional. And this was done as it was part of President Biden's speech to move the country past the pandemic phase of COVID into the more endemic phase of COVID. He mentioned that in his speech, and it was very visually evident that that was the message that the administration was trying to send. You saw behind President Biden, who is speaking, Speaker Pelosi without a mask, Vice President Kamala Harris without a mask, most Democrats without masks, because masks on Capitol Hill had been a very partisan thing. Democrats and their aides would always wear masks and Republicans would not in the hallways. You knew which party an aide was from based on if they were wearing a mask or not for the most part. But I will say on the day of the State of the Union, uh, my Democratic sources have told me that it was a huge topic of discussion among members of Congress whether to mask or not to mask. And ultimately, they decided they had to follow CDC guidelines, which said masks indoors were now optional. If they were the party of following the science, they had to follow the science, however uncomfortable it was, and put the masks aside. Reed Wilson, very quickly here, uh, there were any number of, of responses after this, this speech from the Congressional Black Caucus, from the Progressive Caucus. Uh, there was the No Labels group. They had a, a response to this as well. Very quickly, what do we hear from Kim Reynolds, the governor of, of Iowa, in her official Republican response to this speech? I think Governor Reynolds tried to compare President Biden to Jimmy Carter. She talked a lot about uh, how the Biden administration was moving the country back to the 70s and 80s. Um, that was a, a pretty clear comparison to me, at least. Um, and we didn't hear a lot about mm. Republican plans for the future, but that's the emerging consensus that Republicans in the midterm elections don't plan to offer an alternative. They plan to make this a referendum on President Biden. We're rounding up the week's top stories. And before we go to break, quick piece of sports news. Major League Baseball says it's canceling the first two series of the regular season as labor negotiations with players hit a wall. The MLB Players Association failed to reach an agreement with owners in time for opening day. It has rejected the organization's latest proposals for a collective bargaining agreement after the MLB waited over a month to make the offer. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or to just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Reed, I'd love it if we could get into some state politics here. Texas officially kicking off the 2022 midterm election season this week with its primary on Tuesday. We now know that Democrat Beto O'Rourke and Republican incumbent Governor Greg Abbott will square off in the general election later this year. Talk about Abbott first. This would be his third term as governor. He came out on top against seven other candidates, but it was the most competitive challenge he's faced in, in 25 years. What was significant to you about uh, about his win this week? 
Well, what has struck me over the last couple of years is that we're in something for, for all that politics is dividing us, we're in something of a golden age of voter turnout and engagement. And looking across the, the these these primary elections, uh, Democrats turned out at rec- at levels that were a little bit higher uh, than they did in 2018. That tells me that Democratic voters are enthusiastic about the about the, the midterm elections. However, Republican voters turned out at levels far higher than than they did in 2018. Uh, uh, Greg Abbott got about 67% of the vote, but he got more v- raw votes than the entire number of ballots cast in the Democratic primary. Um, they set records in about 35 counties uh, around Texas. Texas has 254 counties, but they set records for the, the highest number of, of votes that Abbott has ever gotten uh, in, in those particular counties in a primary election. So that tells me that you know Democrats are enthusiastic. Republican enthusiasm is through the roof ahead of the midterms. Um, that was that was my main takeaway from uh, <laughs> a series of pretty crazy races down there. Leanne, put uh, Beto O'Rourke's victory here in in a you know the context of politics uh, of Texas politics uh, in this country generally. Sort of, what does it say about where the Democratic Party is right now? And I should point out, I don't think there's been a, a Democratic governor in Texas in uh, what thirty plus years. Right. So every election year is going to be the year that Demo- that Texas turns blue or at least turns purple. And it has proven effusive for Democrats for many, many election cycles. Um, but Beto O'Rourke's win was I, he's a well-known name there. Uh, it was good for the progressive left. Uh, it was shot of energy for them. Um, although it's going to be interesting how he campaigns in this general election. He has lost statewide office before. Um, he's ran for president and didn't win the primary then either. So he doesn't have a very long track record. But, um, you know, as Reed just said, the numbers of the thing that shocked me about the entire election was the amount of Republicans and the enthusiasm of Republicans who came out. That's going to be very, very difficult to overturn, especially when I look at Texas. I'm really paying attention to the southern part of the state near the border and how Republicans are really making a lot of inroads with the Hispanic community, something that Democrats have been trying to, a community that Democrats have really been trying um, not only to cultivate, but also get to turn out to vote. Um, but it hasn't been that effective for them. Shane Harris, weigh in on this, uh, if you would. I asked Leanne what it means for, for Democrats, but just in terms of what um, this, this midterm season, these, the, these midterm elections are going to look like, what did we learn, if anything, from, from what happened in Texas this week? Well, it does seem to me, I think, that Leanne, just to kind of footstomp that point, the inroads among Hispanic voters are really important. I mean, this is a base that I think the, the Republican Party has been targeting, and I think you're going to see that as a trend of, you know, trying to pick up uh, support in places where traditionally, maybe in recent years, the Republicans have not done so well, and kind of proving that some of these groups are not monolithic. Um, I was also just struck by the fact that it, it just seems that you're, you're, you're seeing candidates still in the mold of Donald Trump are trying to kind of hit at the kind of populist messages that the former president uh, uh, stands for. Uh, it seems like it is still very much his party, whether he runs or not, again, of course, is, a, is, a, is an open question. But you're not seeing candidates here, it seems to me, who are, you know, deviating much from the Trump message. I mean, particularly in the Texas attorney general race as well. Uh, you know, folks who are trying to kind of style themselves in Trumpian ways, these candidates. 
with. So it is still his party, even though he wasn't on the ballot in these elections. Uh, Ken Paxton, the incumbent uh, Republican there, did enjoy the the endorsement of of the previous president, uh, although it seems like that may be in doubt. I think there's some debate over if, if he'll keep that endorsement. Um, what did this race tell us, the race between uh, Ken Paxton, uh, the incumbent attorney general, and, and George P. Bush, the land commissioner uh, in Texas? They're headed to a runoff at, at, at the end of May. Well, it ta- told us a couple of things, and, and to um, uh, to Shane's point there about candidates running in the Trumpian mold, take a look at George P. Bush. I mean, this is the you know the the nephew of the former president, the grandson of George H. W. Bush, the son of Jeb Bush, who has effectively turned himself into Donald Trump or or a, a huge Trump supporter. He's talked about the uh, building the border wall. He's talked about um, uh, you know election fraud that never happened uh, in the twenty twenty election. And he has he very publicly tried to get Trump's endorsement uh, before he, Trump snubbed him in, in favor of Ken Paxton. Paxton, meanwhile, I mean, the reason that a sitting Republican attorney general is now forced into a runoff election with George P. Bush is because Ken Paxton has been under indictment for uh, six five or six years yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, an incredibly long period of time. Republicans in the state were telling me uh, that they, they do not want Paxton on the general election ticket. They see him as a stain on on Republicanism uh, over over the next couple of years. Um, so this, this is a, a really tumultuous time in Texas politics. The the broader thing that's happening here is that there are a few very powerful people in Texas, most notably the lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor in Texas happens to be one of the more powerful uh, mm-hmm. political figures based on the way the state constitution is written, who are trying to pull the entire party to the right. That lieutenant governor is a guy named Dan Patrick, uh, and he controls the, the very conservative Texas state senate. Um, he has tried to meddle in a bunch of these other races, uh, including the governor's race uh, I- itself. He reports uh, tried to get former governor and former Trump Energy Secretary Rick Perry uh, back in the race to challenge Governor Abbott. Uh, that didn't happen, but that, that tells you there, there's still a lot of tension within the Republican Party uh, in this race in particular because the incumbent happens to be under indictment. Yes, the, the securities fraud indictment, the FBI investigation, I should say, uh, Mr. Paxton denies wrongdoing in both, in both those cases. Um, Leanne Caldwell, uh, Texas had passed a, a restrictive voting law uh, recently, and, and this was the first election we could sort of see the effects of that that play out. And, of course, turnout in a primary is, is less than in a, in a general election. But did, did we see any effects of that law uh, as this election took place in Texas? Yeah, especially leading up to it. Mm-hmm. it uh, there was anecdote after anecdote of voters who say that their ballots were returned, that they weren't able to vote, that it was much, much more difficult to vote. Um, you know, the numbers show that a lot of Republicans turned out to vote and the numbers show that Democratic uh, uh, turnout was higher, too. So ultimately, you know, supporters of the Texas law will say it didn't change anything. It did not hamper people's ability to vote. But anecdotally, leading up to the elections, there was story after story about how people's ballots were returned. And it was it, it it did make it more difficult to vote. Um, and so I think we're going to have to wait to see like the overall effects of it. Um, and if perhaps many of the people just decided not to vote and turnout would have been higher had this new rule, these new rules not been in place. Reed, let's, uh, let's stick in Texas here for just a minute more. Uh, and there was this directive, this letter that the governor of the state uh, wrote to the Department of Family uh, and Protective Services uh, targeting trans children uh, in the state. Re- remind us what that letter 
said, what it what it authorized officials in that state to do, and um, give us a sense of the, the controversy that has um, that has exploded around it. Yeah, this is this is becoming a, a national trend here, and, and Texas has has been at the epicenter of it for a while. Governor Abbott uh, directed the the uh, department to look into medical treatments for transgender children uh, approved by their parents as possible uh, child abuse, as, as possible crimes. Now, these medical treatments are things like um, uh, 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 hormone suppressing drugs and and things like that that uh, that can be the beginning steps of of treating somebody who wants a, a, a gender transformation surgery, uh, a, a gender-affirming surgery, I should say. And uh, this comes after the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, issued a non-binding opinion saying that the parents who give their kids these puberty-suppressing drugs or other medical treatments could be invested for child abuse. Now, the first case that was investigated was an employee of the State Child Protective Services Agency itself uh, who has a 16-year-old transgender child. She was placed on leave. She was visited by an investigator. Uh, a judge has blocked that investigation, um, but this is I mean, this is part of a big national trend in which Republicans and Republican governors, uh, specifically, have been targeting transgender children, uh, whether to ban transgender girls from women's sports or to paint this these these hormone treating drugs as some kind of of abuse and. Uh, and, and surgery or, or something like that. I mean, even this week, uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, who gave the Republican response to the State of the Union, signed a bill banning trans girls from women's sports. I expect like this is the next big wedge uh, that Republicans are going to use in the culture wars, and it's targeting transgender children who every every bit of medical literature shows are already at huge risk of suicide or self-harm uh, because, uh, just because of the mental strain uh, of going through going through puberty as a transgender child. Before we end with COVID, uh, another piece of health news I want to flag. The billionaire Sackler family uh, and their company, Purdue Pharma, have reached a new settlement with uh, a group of states over the role the company played in the opioid crisis. The Sacklers will pay $6 billion to address the damage done by the opioid crisis. That's more than a billion dollars more than the original agreement. Uh, In return, no current and future civil claims related to the opioid business will be issued uh, against them. Uh, In his State of the Union address, President Biden laid out his roadmap for getting the country to a place where, as he put it, COVID need no longer control our lives. For more than two years, COVID has impacted every decision in our lives and the life of this nation. And I know you're tired, frustrated, and exhausted. That doesn't even count the close to a million people who sit at a dining room table or a kitchen table and look at an empty chair because they lost somebody. But I also know this, because of the progress we've made, because of your resilience and the tools that we have been provided by this Congress, tonight I can say we're moving forward safely, back to more normal routines. We've reached a new moment in the fight against COVID-19. Reed Wilson, let me ask you about this moment um, as kind of defined by a, a very lengthy report, 96-page report that the White House released on Wednesday of this week. Give us just the big takeaways from that plan, how, how the administration plans to change the tenor, change uh, the way that we live with uh, with COVID in this country. 
Yeah, I, I hate to call this the mission accomplished moment, but um, it sure seems like the White House is trying to move beyond a pandemic that all of us are, are tired of, of dealing with uh, and that has has waned in recent weeks. I mean, it's it's clear that I mean the uh, number of people who are getting uh, uh, infected on a daily basis is down to about 50,000 a day from its peak of around 800,000 in mid-January. Hospitalizations are way down. I mean, it's clear that the Omicron variant is not as, uh, well, has not taken the toll that that some might have feared uh, in you know late November when this when this first uh, erupted. Um, the CDC itself has uh, revised mask guidelines, and it really feels like the public health agencies are trying to get us back to as close to normal as possible. You know, more than ninety percent of Americans live in places where transmission is low enough for uh, a, a a person who does not suffer from underlying conditions uh, can safely take off a mask, according to the the CDC guidelines. Um, it remains high. The transmission remains high in places like Appalachia, in rural counties sort of scattered across the country. Um, but this is really the, the attempt to, uh, to get back to normal and to convey something of a victory lap for an administration that uh, tried to get a handle on it, for an administration for which getting COVID under control was always the number one priority and always the number one gauge of their own success. Leanne Caldwell, it's going to cost money to provide all these free tests, uh, these treatments that the president says will be available now at pharmacies uh, around the country. And earlier we were talking about the legislative agenda. There's the Ukraine aid, the omnibus spending bill. Um, I, I imagine there is a, a robust debate on Capitol Hill now about additional funding to, to pay for some of the things that are proposed in that report. Yeah, there absolutely is. Uh, in addition to the $10 billion that the administration requested for Ukraine aid, they also asked for an additional $22.5 billion to help the administration implement some of this stuff, this kind of live with COVID type of, uh, you know, um, mantra that the administration is moving toward. And Republicans are not thrilled about it. Uh, they are very skeptical that the money is needed. They want a full accounting. A majority of Republicans want a full accounting of the $6 trillion that has already spent on COVID over the past couple of years by the federal government. And uh, the administration was hoping to push this $22.5 billion alongside the Ukraine aid, alongside the government must pass spending bill by the end of next week. And it doesn't look like Republicans are going to go along with it. And this is going to be the last mechanism really for the year for Democrats to move a spending bill if they're able to to pass this larger spending bill. So so the administration might come up against a major roadblock and have major trouble financing this program and this the plans that they want of how, how to move beyond COVID and allow people to function in their daily lives alongside COVID. And this plan comes less than a week after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended easing mask guidelines across much of the country. We talked about that uh, and the White House's new plan on our show yesterday. You can find that on our website, the1a.org. And you know, for that conversation, we asked our text club what they think. Here's what one listener wrote. I think it's too soon to loosen the guidelines and declare this over. Politics in the form of the coming election and the fact that people are ready to go back to normal is driving this now, not science. Too many people are still dying every day. Reed Wilson, how is this continuing to play out politically? Land Caldwell just a few moments ago talking about how it played out in the context of the speech that the president gave. Uh, how are we seeing it play out politically at this point? 
Well, it's, uh, Republicans have used it as uh, a way to talk about getting back to freedom and, and away from the oppressive uh, role of government. Democrats are talking a lot less about COVID now uh, than they were in recent months. I don't expect uh, the coronavirus to play a massive role in the Democratic message as we approach the midterm elections. That's Reed Wilson, the national correspondent for The Hill. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Washington Post. Leanne Caldwell is a Capitol Hill correspondent with NBC News. One A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of One A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is One A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm David Gura in for Jen White. It's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. It'll come as no surprise that Ukraine is today's top story. Russia has seized control of Ukraine's largest power plant. Early on Friday, fighting between the two forces caused a fire at the Zaporizhia power plant that was later put out. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky condemned that attack. Here are some of his remarks through an interpreter. We contacted our partners. I talked to Charles Michael, Schultz. I talked to Duda. I talked to President Biden. We have contacted President Rafael Grassi, also Prime Minister Johnson. And we warn everyone that no other country other than Russia has ever fired on nuclear power units. This is the first time in our history, in the history of mankind, the terrorist state now resorted to nuclear terror. It was a frightening scene that played out in real time on a live stream of those attacks. Joining us today, Jennifer Williams. She's the deputy editor at Foreign Policy and the host of the podcast, The Negotiators. Hey there, Jen. Hey, thanks for having me here. Also with us, the editor of Foreign Affairs, Daniel kurtz He's also the author of the book, The China Mission. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks. Good to be here. And Nancy Youssef is with us as well. She's a national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Good to have you with us, Nancy. Good to be back. Thank you. Jen, let's start with that attack and what we know uh, in the hours that have followed here on this power plant. Um, what do we know about what was hit, what was, what was damaged over the course of that attack? Yeah, so this was really just wild to kind of watch it all unfold. Um, I know I and, and many other journalists and, and observers were kind of watching in horror. There was, as you said, this live stream video showing. It was kind of this grainy black and white video where you could see, you know, flashes kind of happening. You could see car alarms going off. Um, so what looks like it happened is that a fire started at the plant after it was shelled by Russian troops. Um, it seems what was actually hit was an administrative building on the nuclear complex um, rather than, a, you know, a direct hit on on the actual sensitive material there. Um, so the fire was eventually put out. But during that time, you know, uh, between the time when it looked like something had happened, people were noticing that there was shelling going on, there was live fire going on between troops back and forth on this video, um, they noticed a fire had been started and, and officials were saying that, you know, Ukrainian firefighters and emergency responders were unable to get into the complex because of the fighting. So there was a lot of concern, a lot of fear. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the, the um, 
com- uh, conversations uh, that Zelensky had with leaders last night were about. And, you know, I think the bigger takeaway on this right now is that, you know, the fire has been put out. It was put out around 6 a.m. local time. It seems, uh, you know, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and Ukrainian officials say that there wasn't any spike in radiation levels. So it seems, you know, right now that we kind of averted a major catastrophe. But I think, you know, the bigger takeaway here is that there was active fighting at a nuclear plant, at a major nuclear power plant, Europe's biggest. And I think that kind of really shows that, well, yes, we averted catastrophe this time. This is a really dangerous situation. There are other nuclear power plants in Ukraine, and Ukraine is a country at war right now. And so I think, you know, even though, like I said, we averted disaster, I think there are some very serious concerns about, you know, why Russian troops we're, we're shelling this in the first place. They now control the plant. Um, obviously, they now control, you know, a source of, you know, a major source of Ukrainian energy. Um, but I think, you know, broader conversations are going to be had and are being had right now about uh, why Russian troops decided that this was an acceptable thing to do. Dan Kurtzfeilin, on that point, what, what is this portend. I don't want to say it was unimaginable because just a few days before, residents of kind of the surrounding community had tried to blockade the road to the, to the nuclear complex, to the nuclear uh, facility. But, but what does it say about the, the Russian approach to, to this conflict as it continues? So, so in part, this is, you know, yet another way in which in the last couple of weeks, we've returned to these fears and these anxieties that seemed kind of a relic of the Cold War, as mm-hmm. you, as you uh, suggested, there was this uh, there was a seizure of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, which was, of course, one of the great disasters of the late Cold War. There's been these uh, s- a series of not-so-subtle hints from Vladimir Putin about the use of nuclear weapons, about Russia's nuclear arsenal. So all of a sudden, there's this set of concerns about uh, nuclear fallout or nuclear attacks that um, really seem like a relic of the past. This comes in the context of you know the beginning of the second week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that has really, from the Russian perspective, not gone as well as Vladimir Putin certainly expected or hoped in the, in that first week. There was, a, I think, a sense in Moscow that you'd have this relatively quick attack, a kind of show of Russian force, and that the Ukrainians would capitulate fairly quickly, that the response from NATO and from Europe and from the rest of the world wouldn't be as dramatic or united as it's been. Instead, you've seen this really uh, dramatic, often heroic resistance from Uh, both the Ukrainian military and normal Ukrainians. You've seen really uh, adept use of the agility that the the Ukrainians can bring to uh, the response to the Russian invasion. So Mm -hmm. you've seen examples like this convoy that stalled uh, north of Kiev, where the these Russian tanks, which seem to have much more firepower than the, the Ukrainians, have run into logistical difficulties and where anti-tank weapons have been really effective in, in stopping some of those offensives. So after this, uh, from the Kremlin's perspective, very disappointing week that has in many ways shown that the Russian military is uh, uh, much less adept and much less capable than people expected it to be, there's this moment where things are ramping up and where, where the Russians are showing uh, willingness to use more firepower, different kinds of firepower to take on civilian targets, take on sort of riskier targets in in an effort to really um, try to try to show the Ukrainians that resistance does not have a chance. And in the south of the, the south of Ukraine, especially, you see a, a more successful Russian invasion than you saw in the opening days. So there's uh, an effort to kind of take the entire Ukrainian coastline, which would really have significant implications for um, the Ukrainian war effort and the Ukrainian economy and civilian populations. And and this is just one piece of that. So it likely portends uh, a much scarier and more violent and more more deadly phase of the Russian invasion after a week in which uh, things have seemed to be going 
uh, in the Ukrainians' direction much more than people expected. Nancy Youssef, bearing in mind the, the difficulties and disappointments that Russia has endured here over the course of the, the first week of this, this conflict, let's train our attention on the, the, the southern coast there, as, as Dan was talking about just a moment ago, uh, to Kursan, this, this port city in the south, strategic Ukrainian port, has about a quarter of a, a million people. Um, this is the first city to fall to the Russians, reportedly. What do we know about the status of, of that city, and what does that tell us about um, sort of Russian strategic direction? So as you know, it is the first major population center where they have faced um, a battle by Ukrainians in which they've been able to claim the city. That's according to the mayor there. We know that Russian forces are near the administrative building. And at the same time, as of Wednesday, the Ukrainian flag was still flying. And so we've heard that they are there from the local authorities there, that the Ukrainians should um, abide by what they hear from um, the Russians in an effort to keep themselves safe. But the U.S. has stopped short of saying that this is definitively a city under Russian control. Um, It's, as you note, a southern city. It is near um, Odessa, which I think is a a key objective of the Russians. And, and of course, it's a psychological win for the Russians who have spent the past week facing, as my colleagues have noted, a tougher battle than expected. Potentially, there are a couple ways that this... Um, particular town could be advantageous to the Russians. It um, it could be part of a land corridor between Crimea, which the Russians took in 2014, and the Donbass region, which is um, Russian-backed directly into Russia. This would be the start of that path. The other thing that it is, it gives control of an area um, where the Rus- uh, Russians um, haven't been able to get water to uh, Crimea because it's been blocked by the Ukrainians that could pen- potentially open it up. But I also think we have to watch it long term in terms of, in the immediate at least, um, whether this will be a, a barometer for, I think, all of us to see whether the Russians can hold the town, how they t- intend to govern, how they intend to um, treat the population. So this is really going to be um, a really uh, a key um, place for all of us to see the level of Russian aggression. We've seen it in, in a bid to take cities, but how do they hold them as well? Dan kurtz I want to ask you about what we know about the, the deadliness of this conflict thus far, the, the casualties and the fatalities that, that we've seen. There's There's been a really wide discrepancy in terms of the counts that we've gotten from both Ukraine and, and Russia. Uh, what does that tell us, and, and what's your sense of, of again, the deadliness of, of, of the conflict thus far? Well, it, it, it's really hard to know when you hear these dramatically different figures what what the truth is. We're in the kind of middle of, of, uh, of the, you know, the fog of war, as the, uh, as the cliche goes. And it's it's very hard to know exactly what the the civilian toll is, what the toll of troops on both sides has been so far, and all of that is complicated further by there's an element of kind of information warfare here with each side and lots of international sources um, wanting to project different numbers to suggest that the conflict is you know going in in favor of one side or the other. Um, Ukraine says at the moment that something like two thousand civilians have been killed. There are UN figures that have that closer to. Um, closer to 500 in the first week of the war. Uh, but we can certainly see in the last couple of days that uh, those numbers are going to start rising pretty quickly uh, if, if what we've seen it from the Russians is an indication of the way the use of force will change. There's also 
you also have dueling statistics when it comes to the, the troop deaths. So Russians uh, say they have finally admitted that they've lost uh, several hundred troops. This was something that the, the Russian authorities were being cagey about because they're very sensitive to uh, fears of, of casualties and what that could mean for uh, Putin's own legitimacy at home and the support for the war within mm. uh, the Russian population. The Ukrainians put that number much, much higher, something like uh, nine or 10,000 now. Mm. So uh, it'll take a while before we have any clarity about what these real numbers are, but you'll see both sides using uh, these revelations and these disclosures to try to suggest momentum. Getting a number of emails from listeners about the nuclear issue in particular. Margaret writes, we have thousands of nuclear weapons between us and Russia, many of which are on hair trigger alert status programmed for chain reaction. This was an extremely dangerous situation even prior to this war, much more dangerous if we risk war with Russia, especially with an apparently unstable leader in Russia. The conversations that the Secretary of State is having on a trip to Europe that he's taking uh, right now, talking with a number of European allies, I think like three-fourths of uh, European Union countries uh, have NATO membership uh, as well. Help us understand the role that NATO has played thus far uh, in this conflict. Yeah, so a couple of things. First of all, I think it's you know important to understand that when we talk about you know whether or not NATO should intervene in this conflict, um, NATO countries, the United States in particular, but many others, are already intervening um, in terms of sending weapons, sending assistance, things like that. What people mean, though, when they say, you know, should NATO get more, you know, involved is talking about actually sending troops um, or something like a no-fly zone, um, which we can talk about more. Um, But I think, you know, it's important to just kind of understand that when we, we talked about other conflicts, you know, U.S. involvement in Syria, et cetera, um, various other places, you know, when when the U.S. and other countries are sending, you know, weapons directly to one party, that is involvement. So just to be clear, um, but I think you know, in terms of NATO more broadly, right, the big issue here is Ukraine is not a NATO ally of the United States. It's not a member of NATO, um, and so what you know, the Secretary of State is doing, what the Biden administration has been doing very much for the past several weeks, is trying to essentially reassure all of the NATO allies who are you know, kind of the next in line after Ukraine, um, that the United States and that NATO will support them, sending troops to kind of bolster, especially that eastern flank of NATO, Um, not because U.S. troops or any other troops are going to be going directly into Ukraine, but rather the, the kind of concern here is that should Russia, should Putin decide to push further or should fighting spill over, that the U.S. wants to make sure that all of its NATO allies understand that the U.S. will be there, that U.S. troops are there, and making a, a statement very clearly to Putin as well, that, you know, there is a red line. You cannot go farther. Um, I think what we've seen, you know, a lot of calls for greater intervention, um, you know, including that that comment that you just mentioned, um, going further, especially after this nuclear attack, I think one thing that people really need to understand and that is really at the heart of this is that, As we've said, Russia is a major nuclear power, right? And so the huge risk here is that if the U.S. were to get involved in a sense that there was a direct shooting war with U.S. shooting down Russian planes, for instance, in order to, um, you know, to to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukrainian airspace, that would mean that the U.S. and Russia were directly in conflict. And the, the concern there is that that could escalate and end up in a nuclear, you know, conflict. 
Nancy Youssef, as we, as we wait for or fumble over the, the data that we're getting on casualties and fatalities, we do have more concrete data on the, the refugee crisis that's emerging here. More than a million people have been forced to flee Ukraine since Russia invaded the country. Uh, that's according to the UN's top refugee official. Uh, around half of those refugees are now in Poland. Most of the rest are in other European countries. Um, Nancy, what do we know about the journey that they've, they've been taken, taking and sort of who's, who and what is meeting them when they arrive uh, in Poland and these other countries? Well, I want to start by kind of giving some context to the numbers because I think sometimes we hear numbers and don't appreciate the scale yeah. of it, particularly in this conflict. One, per, one million is 2% of the population. To, to, to give you a sense of how quickly this is happening, it took three months for similar figures to come out of the conflict in Syria. And in 2015, at the height of the crisis, it was 1.3 million refugees from the Middle East and, and, and North Africa into the EU. We're talking about the s- similar numbers in the span of a week. And their, their, their trek has been awful. Um, we've seen convoys of 55 miles long of people trying to get to a border, um, leaving um, in a matter of minutes in some cases because this was a nation that largely didn't expect this kind of conflict. Um, Crossing into um, a border sometimes with uh, children who are unaccompanied because, of course, men are not allowed to cross over. And, and, and in case, some cases, walking for miles, pushing onto trains with limited space on platforms that were never designed to take this many people, going into countries that have been largely welcoming of, of them and then trying to find a place. The other thing I would point out about these numbers is that they really change the, the p- politics of Europe. When you have this kind of movement into places like Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Hungary, that changes the political dynamic. And to see that happening, again, as I mentioned, we saw this with Syria, we're now seeing a shift in the sort of the whole tenor of of Eastern Europe. And I think we should therefore be prepared for this kind of migration to continue to move forward into Western Europe as well. Dan Kurtzfalen, what are you hearing uh, in that conversation among European politicians in particular uh, about this growing refugee crisis, to, to Nancy's very good point? This is just a small percentage of, of Ukraine's population thus far, and there's the expectation that these numbers are going to continue to to swell, continue to grow. Um, what's the quality of that conversation like among European leaders, and what are we hearing in terms of, of concrete steps they're going to take to uh, welcome this population uh, so much as they are uh, to these other countries? So the initial steps have very much been intended to send a kind of clear message of of European welcome to these refugees, kind of in line with the broader support for Europeans for the the Ukrainian war effort, and so the both the kind of symbolic steps and the rhetoric that you've seen from uh, really a kind of a, a very wide array of Eastern European leaders and Western European leaders, even some who uh, were pretty um, vehement in their anti-refugee rhetoric in past circumstances, has been uh, for the time being quite uh, quite welcoming, quite quite supportive of the refugees. The the European Union has. Uh, made initial steps to uh, allow them to to stay for at least three years and extended other measures to to make life uh, somewhat easier for for many of these and you've seen various cities opening buildings opening spaces to, to refugees I think overhanging this conversation and surely if you're a European politician this is somewhere in the back of your mind is the refugee crisis of several years ago when you had this huge influx of refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and sub-Saharan Africa from from conflicts that were a bit were a bit further flung and in that case you had initial welcome in many places Angela Merkel's uh, you know famous opening of, of Germany to a, a million refugees uh, is probably the most the most striking example of this but the backlash came 
came came quite quickly. And I think there's obviously a, a, a racial element to this and a cultural element to this that uh, might suggest that you're not going to get quite the same backlash with Ukrainians. But I think there are there are European politicians who are wondering whether their societies and their political systems will uh, support this uh, for for truly over the long term. So on the one hand, you've had this this real effort to uh, to welcome and support these Ukrainian refugees and repair for likely, you know, millions more. I think the UN has said that uh, something like four million more are likely to arrive in neighboring countries in the, in the coming weeks, um, and that could certainly escalate uh, way beyond that. But there is, I think, uh, uh, some concern about what what that's going to mean for societies and political leaders over the the medium and long term. And I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of anxiety there. I want to come back to that uh, racial and cultural dynamic uh, in just a moment, put a pin in that. We'll come back to it in in just a sec. But I I do want to talk about um, the overture that Ukraine has made to the European Union. Um, The EU's leader uh, suggesting that it wants to be a part of the the group officially. And the EU's leader, President Ursula von der Leyen, uh, spoke to Euronews about the prospect of that happening this week. We have a very close cooperation on the energy grid, for example. So many topics where we work very closely together and indeed over time, they belong to us. They are one of us, and we want them in. So this will take time, presumably, a time Ukraine doesn't have. On Monday, President Zelensky signed an emergency application asking for a special procedure that would allow Ukraine to join the EU immediately. We're grateful to our partners for being with us, he said, but our goal is to be with all Europeans and, most importantly, be equal. I'm confident, he continued, that is fair. I'm confident we have deserved it. I'm confident that it is possible. And that's from the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. Jen, what difference would EU membership make for Ukraine right now, being a part of this union? And and again, this is a process that would take some time uh, under normal circumstances. Yeah, I think there are two kind of differences here. One is what the actual tangible, you know, benefits would be in terms of, you know, trade and and regulation and, you know, opening up, um, you know, borders, et cetera. And then one is the broader kind of symbolic, um, you know, meaning of what this would be. And I think that's right now what we're seeing, right? As you said, actually uh, joining the EU would take a very long time and take, you know, many years. Uh, it's a really detailed process. And even, you know, requesting a special procedure, uh, such a procedure doesn't actually exist. So they would have to invent one, create one. Um, treaties would have to be amended. Then you would have to go to the next step of looking at every kind of aspect of Ukraine's, um, you know, legal system from, you know, environmental environmental regulations to economic regulations, agricultural products, manufacturing, et cetera. So I think what we're seeing now is much more a symbolic, like, look, we we want to be part of the club. We are, you know, pro-Western. We want to be more involved. We want, you know, we are declaring that we are part of, of Europe. Um, and so I think, you know, it's very much meant to send a signal. And I think that's what we're seeing in terms of the response from Ursula von der Leyen and others um, saying, you know, yes, we, we support this, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we welcome this. But I think other leaders, especially in, in Germany in particular, are being a little bit more circumspect, saying, you know, <laughs> this is going to take time. This is not something that is, you know, particularly viable in the short term um, to really just make this happen overnight, especially during wartime. But it is very much meant to kind of send the signal that, look, you know, we, we want EU backing. We consider ourselves part of, of your world, uh, part of your culture. We want to be, you know, considered part of Europe. And so please have our backs. I think it's also important to understand that there is a bit of a mutual assistance um, element to mm-hmm. to EU membership that could also potentially get in the way here. Um, not exactly a mutual defense treaty on the on the degree of NATO, but definitely um, some commitments that would need to be made there. 
Dan Kurtzfeilin, I'd love to ask you about time uh, in light of what Jen Williams was just was just talking about. And you, know, you look at other countries in, in the region that would like to be a part of the EU. I'm thinking of Albania and North Macedonia and Serbia and Turkey, Kosovo, perhaps. Um, so there are others who are in the queue wanting to be a part of, of this organization. I, I go back to something else that, that Ursula van der Leyen said this week, and that is that European security and defense has evolved more in the last six days than in the last two decades. So I return to this notion of just kind of time behaving in kind of a funny way uh, as being a part of this this crucible. Um, and I'd love for you to speak to that, just the, the way that Europe has changed almost overnight. So indeed, membership in the EU might not happen overnight, but there have been these kind of seismic sea changes that have taken place since this conflict began. It, it, it's, it's a great point. And I think any observer of Europe or of the state of, of international affairs uh, would have been shocked uh, if you told them, you know, 10 days ago that we would see the number of changes that we've seen, especially when it comes to uh, European security policy and Europe's approach to its own defense and to the use of power over the last week. The, the German shift has been the most dramatic. You know, Germany had uh, for a long time been uh, something of an outlier among major European powers in its uh, approach to Russia and was much more committed to kind of maintaining uh, good ties with Russia. Its its energy and its economy is very, very much dependent on Russia. Uh, you saw the, the new German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, mm-hmm. uh, come out and basically disown uh, decades of German foreign policy when it came to Russia in the past week. There was a commitment to increase uh, increased defense spending very dramatically over that that 2% number that American politicians and Donald Trump especially have have obsessed over, the percent of, of GDP that European countries spend on, on their own defense and on, on their militaries. Uh, you've seen just an incredible amount of, of uh, military support going into Ukraine, both from NATO members, but also from non-NATO members, countries like Sweden that have generally been pretty um, pretty hesitant to provide this kind of support and to get involved in some of these uh, kinds of disputes. You've seen anti-tank weapons and uh, anti-aircraft weapons and, and all this weaponry going into going into Ukraine. And you, you just kind of the rhetorical change that you've seen from this incredible swath of, of European leaders has been you know, the kind of thing that Americans have been uh, in some ways calling for for, for years and years and years to sure. no avail. And it was really Vladimir Putin who did what American leaders and all their uh, persuasive efforts failed to do. It's also just, I think, we're stressing on the, the EU point that when you go back to 2014 and the Russian intervention and, and the seizure of Crimea then, that was really spurred by Ukraine's interest interacting with the EU. There's lots of talk from the Kremlin about NATO enlargement and what that would mean. But the thing that really terrifies the Kremlin is Ukraine's interaction with the EU and becoming part of Europe in the ways that Jen describes much more than NATO. So symbolically, that that call and the, the European response, even if mostly symbolic, really goes to the kind of heart of, of, of Russian fears here and just reminds all of us the extent to which Vladimir Putin has made his worst fears uh, come true by the way he's handled this uh, this invasion. Nancy Youssef, let's move from from traditional warfare to economic warfare, something that's been um, really pioneered, if not perfected, over the course of of these last few weeks, the kind of agreement that we've seen coalesce among the United States and and its allies to impose sanctions and um, severe economic ramifications on on Russia. Um, You've done a lot of reporting on the EU's effort to blockade or put blocks on on Russian ships. Um, I should say the UK and the US have put similar bans in place this week, week as well. What's that going to mean for uh, the global supply chain, which had already been under strain? How, how effective are those particular sanctions, those, those particular punitive efforts uh, on, uh, on Russia right now? 
So as you know, we've seen a week in which there's been uh, a bevy of sanctions put on Russian companies, the Russian economy, Russian oligarchs. And there's also been a private sector effort of um, announcing that they're not going to do business with Russia or move their companies out of Russia or not um, be open to Russia. And then there's this sort of area of that where it's mixed. And I think it happens in places like um, air and sea travel. And so this week we heard from the Biden administration that it would ban Russian aircraft from flying in American airspace and that there's now um, an expectation that that will be extended to the sea. The this was sort of spurred by the UK, which was did this first. Canada is considering it and expected to do so at the end of the week. We've heard similar talk from from Europe. The important distinction is um, there are some that are looking at um, banning all Russian ships. Um, that come from Russia, and then there are some that are looking at banning Russian flagships. And the reason that that's an important distinction is. For the U.S., for example, only 1% of um, ships that come to U.S. ports are Russian flagged. But the tankers that um, that we depend on for oil usually are uh, Russian oil, but with um, ships flagged from other nations. And so this is all part of um, an effort to create an economic um, pressure on, on Russia, but also in a way that um, the president has sought to do um, – without putting so much economic pressure and strain on the American public, which is already f- facing fears of inflation and has already, of course, dealt with two years of all the economic repercussions of the pandemic. Just an extraordinary amount of sanctions that have been put in place layer upon layer upon layer. Sources I've been speaking with this week have called it unprecedented, certainly the central bank sanctions in particular, particularly severe. And now this question, if the U.S. and its allies will approach energy sanctions. The United Nations General Assembly approved a four-page resolution to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The result of the vote is as follows. In favor, 41. Against, 5. Abstentions, 35. That resolution demands that Russia remove military forces from Ukraine, but it's non-binding. I should say there were four countries uh, who opposed it. Uh, Russia, of course, was one of them. Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, and Syria were in the mix uh, as well. Jen, what does this resolution effectively do? As I say, it's non-binding. Um, what it mainly does is it sends a really powerful message that, you know, even countries who uh, whose leaders are, are you know, generally very friendly with Vladimir Putin um, ended up either, you know, actually voting in favor of this resolution or at best abstaining. Um, I think there were some really remarkable uh, people who, who ended up voting in favor of this resolution. As you said, it, it's non-binding. It's not going to do anything in particular. It doesn't mean that the UN is going to send an, an army or or peacekeepers or anything like that, um, you know, because Russia <laughs> has a veto power at the UN Security Council, um, there's not much that the UN can actually do itself. But it does send a really powerful message that the world is very much united, I think, to a degree that potentially Vladimir Putin maybe did not expect. Um, so some that caught my eye, um, in particular, you know, Brazil, uh, we saw uh, Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil you know, making a trip to Moscow, you know, just a little bit before the invasion of Ukraine began and seeing Brazil vote in favor of the resolution was fairly remarkable. We've also seen others, um, you know, Viktor Orban of Hungary, et cetera. Um, And I think it's just really interesting to see kind of how much there has been this kind of unity and and, um, rejection of what Russia has done in a way that, like I said, I'm not sure Putin potentially really expected it to go this far. It also potentially has ramifications for things like the International Criminal Court, 
the ICC did just launch a, an investigation um, in Ukraine and looking at, you know, potential war crimes, crimes against humanity, et cetera. And I think, you know, understanding that a lot of these countries that voted in favor of this resolution are also party to the ICC could potentially send a message that there is political will in a way that there maybe hasn't been in previous investigations. So I think that in particular could have actual more tangible ramifications here. Uh, the word entente uh, is lingua franca in, in all your newsrooms where, where all of you work. But Dan Kurtzfeldt, help me out with, with the term in the context here of, of what China has done. Uh, China didn't vote against uh, this resolution, didn't vote for it. It abstained from the vote here. And we, we remember how leading up to the, the last Olympics, President Putin made a trip to China. He, he met with President Xi. Um, they, they reached this agreement. Uh, and, and I wonder sort of how you would define it and, and what it's telling you about the role that China is playing as we enter the second week of this conflict. This is, I think, one of the most interesting kind of geopolitical variables uh, that we've seen playing out over the, these past months. The growing convergence of, of Russia and China over the past several years has been a source of, of huge concern to policymakers in Washington and in Europe as they see you know, a fast-rising China uh, increasingly um, considering Russia, which you know, is a, a declining power in many ways, but still has great military capabilities and, and a lot of resources that China wants. Uh, we've seen China really um, uh, seeing Russia as much more of an ally. And so uh, you saw um, a, a visit by Vladimir Putin to Beijing in a meeting with Xi Jinping, where they talked about their their great friendship and made a five thousand word statement that really you know went farther than um, probably any statement uh, between a Russian and Chinese leader for several decades, and kind of talking about their shared view of the world. And this all comes fifty years after Richard Nixon's visit to China, which was the moment when, in this great coup of American Cold War diplomacy, the Americans were able to kind of peel away. Uh, the Chinese from from their you know former Soviet allies, but this is also quite complicated for China because you know China does not want to see itself as part of this isolated block with Russia and those you know five countries that that Jen uh, mentioned that also uh, voted against the resolution in the in the UN General Assembly, and so China has. Uh, despite those kind of calls uh, for great friendship and this growing convergence between Russia and China over the past several years, it's been a little bit uncomfortable, kind of visibly uncomfortable in in, in recent days as it's seen the Russian offensive play out because it does not want to blow up its relationship with the European countries. It doesn't want to ruin all these trade relationships. It doesn't want to see itself cut off from uh, international supply chains, especially when it comes to technology because it's supporting Russia. So on the one hand, you have... If you look at the, you know, kind of Chinese internet, you see lots of, of rhetorical support for uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, mostly as a way of kind of creating trouble for the United States and for for the for U.S. allies. But at the same time, a degree of wariness and a kind of um, caginess from from official official Chinese statements, which are really trying to kind of stay a little bit out of it. And I think there's a degree of kind of uh, both anxiety and confusion when it comes to views in Beijing about how to how to respond to what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, Chris Buckley, the, the long-term China hand for, for the New York Times, uh, writing a great line about how officials in Beijing won't even call it an invasion. They're calling it Russia's operation or uh, the current situation. And Nancy Yusuf, I want to ask you about um, reporting on some Western intelligence report that, that came out uh, on Wednesday. Chinese officials have uh, reportedly asked Russia to delay its attack on Ukraine until after the Beijing Olympics in, in February. China very vociferously denied uh, those claims in the days after that reporting came out. What, what do we know about the credibility of that intelligence and, and what does this report tell us about the, the situation? 
Well, let me start with the report itself. Sure. It was um, first reported by the New York Times in which they said, I don't know if we, your listeners will remember that Vladimir Putin traveled to China for its opening ceremonies and that at some point during that meeting, not necessarily, excuse me, during that visit, not necessarily in a meeting between Putin and Xi, but some sort of communication happens in which the Chinese said, um, according to this report, uh, please don't launch your invasion before our Olympics end on February 20th. Now, I should note that Xi Jinping um, was the head of the Olympic Committee the last time China hosted the Olympics in 2008 and took a very keen interest in the Olympics and, um, of course, invested billions in it. And so there was an um, interest from its leadership and, of course, to the nation um, economically for the Olympics to be successful. The challenge is there's some dispute within Western intelligence services about um, the degree of that discussion, what it said about what China knew uh, about the period leading up to the invasion. And so I think it's created some ambiguity about um, whether China was sort of complicit in knowing and not saying anything or whether this was more of a wink nod. It, it's not clear the degree of communication and how much Russia shared with China ahead of time. But either way, it gets at um, what Dan talked about, this sort of delicate dance that um, China is trying to do um, in the face of um, just a few weeks ago calling its friendship with um, Russia as limitless and at the same time seeking to expand its influence um, in Western Europe, all the while watching, as you've noted, a growing international pressure and isolation of Russia. So um, it, it, we're, we're in a little state of um, uncertainty about what precisely happened, but it gets at um, potentially the timing of this. You'll remember that the U.S. had warned at one point before the Olympics ended that they thought the the attack could start before February 20th. It did not. Was this meeting, was this communication a part of it? I, I think that's the question now on the table. Mm. Uh, I want to ask you about one more country that abstained, Jen, and that's that's India. Uh, it made its first statement on the conflict in Ukraine, emphasizing the importance of, of de-escalation, but didn't directly condemn Russia's actions. Um, why here is is India working so hard to to stay neutral? Right. Well, so India has a long kind of history of defense cooperation with Moscow in particular, first of all. Um, I think, you know, Russia still continues to be India's largest arms supplier. Uh, but that share has dropped a bit um, as India has tried to kind of uh, diversify its military, um, uh, you know, um, uh, acquisitions and tried to boost its own kind of internal um, uh, manufacturing. But, you know, there is a kind of long history there. Also, um, you know, India does have a history of the of the non-aligned movement, right, of, of trying to not uh, pick sides in the Cold War. Um, but I do think we're seeing a lot of pressure now um, on India to take a side, right? We're seeing uh, whether which side that is, right, kind of depends. But I think we're seeing a lot of pressure from the U.S. and the West, um, although a lot of that pressure is being done sort of behind the scenes rather than more directly kind of calling out India publicly. Um, but we're also, you know, seeing Moscow making its own entreaties. And so, you know, I think India has to make a lot of decisions here. Um, you know, uh, Russia has helped, um, you know, give India some kind of cover, in particular on, on border disputes and things like that. Um, so, you know, it, it is a very delicate geopolitical dance. It's not going to be quite the same thing as you're seeing with China, right? India has a much closer relationship with the West. 
Um, you know, U.S.-India relations um, in recent years have gotten much closer. Um, but you also have seen some, you know, authoritarian kind of leanings um, on the part of Narendra Modi. Uh, and so there's definitely a kind of a, a tightrope that India is trying to walk. And they're essentially trying to, you know, stay out of it and not have to pick sides. How long that will last and whether it will be able to do so, especially as the violence continues, as the kind of recklessness of Russian troops um, escalates. You know, if we see more incidents like we saw with the nuclear power plant, it's going to be hard for Russia to not at least, you know, make a more decisive statement. Uh, Dan, I promised I'd come back to the kind of cultural and, and racial dynamics at play in the, in the refugee crisis. And here it dovetails with what's happening uh, with India as well. My colleagues, Frank Langford, Tim Mack, and Eleanor Beardsley reporting on the fact that there are many hundreds of Indian students who have taken shelter in, in university dorms in northeast Ukraine, trying to leave Ukraine with this, this flow of, of refugees. And this is emerging, the story of, of, of Indian students, Nigerian students emerging as a, a, a story, another part of this narrative in the refugee crisis. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting in the context of of India's abstention that that Jen was just discussing that when the Indian when Indian officials talk about uh, what their objectives are in Ukraine, what their priorities are, they talk most of all about those students, and they've even gotten some uh, help, some kind of rewards from from Russian officials for that abstention and in, in getting uh, some some help in in taking care of some of those Indian students. So they would say that's our that's our priority is taking care of our citizens. But you have seen, especially in the the, the refugee flows into Europe, some discrepancy in the way that Ukrainian and Indian uh, refugees are treated, and then some of the some of the African or South Asian um, expatriates who are in in Ukraine and also trying to flee flee from the warfare. So you saw three um, representatives of three African nations on the UN Security Council uh, condemning some of the reports of discrimination against African citizens at the border uh, during a meeting earlier this week. Uh, there have been wide widespread reports from some of these students fleeing the country that they faced, um, you know, segregation and racism and, and even abuse. You, you've seen some of them kind of stuck in the snow at the border, even as as others have been have been waved through. So yeah. it's a reminder of of um, the some of the the racial and cultural elements that we see in the different responses to refugee populations in Europe, and uh, also probably explains some of the the geopolitical maneuvering that sure. you have both the Indian government but some of the African governments doing in in this context. This week, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put out its latest report. Spoiler alert here, rather. Uh, it's, it's not looking good. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. With fact upon fact, this report reveals how people and the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. Nearly half of humanity is living in the danger zone now. Many ecosystems are at the point of no return now. And checked carbon pollution is forcing the world's most vulnerable on a frog march to destruction now. The facts are undeniable. This abdication of leadership is criminal. That's UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres talking about this latest report. Nancy Youssef, I'll turn to you first here. Uh, this is 30-something pages uh, written by scientists, reviewed by policymakers. Uh, what are some of the broader takeaways from, from this report? I, I think the broadest takeaway is that it described essentially a new normal in which um, shifts in climate is, has now increased the likelihood of extreme weather events. The other interesting thing that I found in this report is that it detailed how the the world needs to respond and that there's not an equal or same response across nations, that each nation is impacted differently, that adaptations um, must account for um, 
inequality in, in economy, in impact. And so I think it was one of the more nuanced reports we've seen come from the UN about the impact of climate, its effect on not only population and, and weather, but food scarcities. It, it spelled out really, I think, um, the long-term implications of climate change, that it will, it'll become a key pillar as we talk about national security. And I should note that in all the major conflicts that we have been talking about um, over the fa- last few years, climate has been an issue, including in Ukraine, in mm-hmm. which the water shortages that we saw going to Crimea, some think w- was a factor in Russia's decision to invade, to open up those waterways to Crimea. And so we s- we're seeing it, it practically, and also in this report, the implications of climate change, not only on weather, but on broader national security. Jen, this is an introduction to a recognition of that new normal as Nancy Youssef describes it. Um, But herein are some warnings, um, some recommendations, maybe not prescriptive recommendations, but things that governments could could do. Um, What what are among them? What what are suggestions this report makes about how uh, this could be um, mitigated in some effect? Yeah, I think one of the important things is they talked about that every fraction of a degree matters, right, When in terms uh, in terms of limiting global warming. And so, you know, I think we tend to think of this kind of 1.5, you know, limiting warning, warming to this 1.5 degree Celsius um, above pre-industrial levels kind of benchmark. But what they're saying is, like, there are things that you can do, um, you know, to even just help a fraction of a degree. So specific things, uh, you know, rapidly cutting emissions, of course. It's all the stuff that we know. Scaling up international funding, helping vulnerable countries deal with loss and damages, um, dealing with adaptation efforts, um, focusing on things like reducing flood risk, um, you know, improving health systems to deal with extreme heat waves. So these are the things that are very much focused on adaptation rather than just the the emissions, because we've seen that the emissions cutting uh, is very complicated politically. But I think it's it's potentially much easier to say, okay, yes, everyone can get behind you know, improving access to clean water and improving health systems. Jen Williams is the deputy editor at Foreign Policy, host of the Negotiators podcast. Daniel kurtz is an editor at Foreign Affairs. He's uh, also author of The China Mission. Nancy Youssef, a national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to all of them for joining us on this Friday. One A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Jonklin Hill is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barbangiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Jen White is back on Monday. Let's talk more soon. This is One A.